0: had the Grace Baptist brass today. I didn't, uh, I didn't know that was coming. That's good. That's good. Appreciate that. Heard of the Tijuana brass, but I think the Grace Baptist brass is better. All right. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11 today. As we come to this passage of... Uh, of this book that begins to get into some of the real meat and some of the real passages that for some people are, are troublesome passages. As a matter of fact, there are some pastors who, quite frankly, just won't even preach through the Book of Hebrews because you come to these passages that talk about these things and and they just really not rather not deal with them because they're they're they do have to have some understanding. They have to have some some in depth looking at. It. And I'm not sure I'll do it justice this morning in the time that I have, but I'll, if I don't, I'll come back maybe uh, on it even again next week. But it's an important passage as it starts moving into what we know as the, the clear warning passages of the, uh, of the Scripture and the warning passages of, uh, of the book of Hebrews. Uh, and so what you find here is the writer to this book showing a very heavy heart. Matter of fact, I, I titled the sermon, The Hurting Heart of a Pastor. Because as we've seen looking at this, I think it should already be plain that as we've moved through the first five chapters through verse 10, we've already seen that this, this writer of this book has a real compassionate pastoral concern for the people. He's not just writing to a group of, of people he doesn't care about, he's writing to people that he's hurting for. Now, later on, we'll find out he's some distance away right now. For what are the circumstances, we don't know. But we do know that he has a heart for these people, a pastoral heart, and he hurts to see them falling in the way that they're falling and going in the way that they're going and not becoming what God has called them to be as a church. And that's important to see. And in this passage, he's going to address three great concerns, three things that he sees as obvious, and then he will deal with those, and he'll come back to them again uh, later on in this book. But he wants them to hear it clearly up front in these verses. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 11 of chapter 5. Concerning him, that is Jesus, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. We'll talk about that phrase in a minute, but that's a significant phrase here in this passage. You have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And then in chapter 6, because this is one of those breaks I think is an unnatural break. Therefore, leaving the elementary principles or the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings or uh, baptisms, laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and they have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now, we'll stop there, and and probably won't get all of that done this week, but we'll, we'll try to as we think about what the, what the writer here is saying to these Christians. There are three problems that I said that he's gonna address. The first problem is found in verses 11 through 14 of chapter five, and it's the problem of ignorance. Just the problem of ignorance. Now, understand, I don't use that as a derisive term. I don't mean, you know, we'll sometimes look at somebody and just... Call them ignorant as a way of kind of a, a put down or, or saying something negative about them. So, what I mean by that, when I say the problem of ignorance, I'm talking about just the problem of not knowing, the problem of lacking something that they ought to know about understanding something that they ought to be walking in and living by something that they ought to have experienced, and yet they are living in a blissful ignorance because they have not gone to the point where God would take them as a church and where God would desire for them to be as a church. The writer is convinced, I think, that this ignorance stems from a a very common problem, and that common problem is laziness. Laziness. Do you notice there in verse 11 when he says, I, I, I have much to say about Jesus? I mean, he's just told him that he is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and he doesn't unpack it there. And to me, it's almost like him saying, I got a lot to say about this matter of him being after the order of Melchizedek, but you're not ready to hear it. You're not ready to learn it. You're not ready to understand it because you have become dull of hearing dull of hearing the the word dull of hearing there it gives the indication of laziness in the Septuagint it's used to talk about men who are sluggish and slothful who literally uh, refuse to tackle hard work they see a hard job they see a a task that is difficult and they say whoa we don't want to tackle that task we don't want to go after that task we would rather do something that is less strenuous something that is less difficult There are a lot of people in in their Christian life who come to a point of getting into the scripture and they say, listen, I just want to stay right here. How many times have I been told by men and women who are in a Baptist church who, who believe they are leaders in the Baptist church, who believe they've got a, uh, everything going right for them, and they will say to me, you know, all I really want to know and all I really need to know is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now that is a tremendous verse. But if that's the depth of your understanding of the Christian faith, If that's the depth of your understanding of Scripture and the depth of your walk with Christ, I want to tell you something. The writer of the Hebrews has something to say to you right here. Because that indicates a laziness. That indicates a slothfulness. That indicates a dullness of hearing. Just tell me enough to be saved. Just tell me enough to to be able to go to heaven when I die. But but don't tell me the in-depth truth about Christ and about the Christian life and about doctrine and about things that are important for daily living. The writers convince that their ignorance flows out of laziness. Secondly, the writer has observed that their ignorance has led to an ineffectiveness. And in verse 12 he says, for by this time, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you have again a need for someone to teach you in the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have become come to need milk and not solid food they are ineffective in their ministry. Why? Because they are ignorant about the truth of God and they're lazy about pursuing it. I mean, he says here, you've turned your backs on strenuous study and diligent application of spiritual teaching, and because of that, you remain babies when you ought to be adults, you remain pupils when you ought to be instructors or teachers, and you remain Christians in need of help when you ought to be offering help to others. In verse 12, he talks about their ineffectiveness because of their ignorance. Friend, if you're not spending time in God's Word, if you're not growing in God's Word, if you're not developing understanding of the deeper things of God found in His Word, if all you depend on is one sermon once a week, let's get it over with and get out of here, this man is talking to you because there is a level of ignorance there, not a derisive term, but a level of misunderstanding or non-understanding that he is saying you must get beyond because you're still a baby and you ought to be an adult. You're still a pupil, and you ought to be teaching. You're still in need of help, and you ought to be helping others and seeing what you can do to minister to them. The writer here is very clear that there ought to be a movement. There ought to be a progression, and every Christian ought to, at some point, become a teacher of somebody else. We talked about that last week. Where the Apostle Paul said to young Timothy in, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.2, where he said, listen, the things that I have taught you in the presence of many witnesses, you take and teach others that they might also teach others. Find faithful men and teach them that they might find faithful men, and I might add women here, and they, and they will teach others. There is to be a growth and a maturity where you are not just sitting around needing to be taught all the time, but you are now taking what you've been taught and you're teaching others. Listen, I encourage you. I sometimes will mention books we have in the book nook, and and I always encourage you, if you feel like you're still in need of the elementary elementary things, if you're still kind of dwelling there in John 3.16 and can't get beyond that, I encourage you to go out to the bookstore and buy a copy of John Stott's little book, Basic Christianity, and devour that book. Eat that book. Live that book. Just basic doctrine. Who is Christ? What has he done? What is the resurrection? You know, how do you live the Christian life? I mean, it's a phenomenal classic book that you need to get under your belt. You you need to be able to take that book then and know it and be able to teach it to other people because that is the whole purpose of the Christian life, that we might be able to grow, mature, and teach others. Thirdly, he says that this spiritual ignorance in these first first four verses, we're looking at 11 through 14 of chapter 5, He knows that spiritual ignorance not only is from laziness, not only has led to ineffectiveness, but it also results in carelessness in verses 13 and 14. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The cry for baby's milk is wrong when they ought to be feasting on meat. The desire for the milk of the word is wrong when you've been a Christian for 10, 15, 20 years and you're still just wanting to sit around and drink the milk and you need to be feasting on the meat of the word. And the writer says this this is a carelessness thing. There's a lack of practice. Because those who are mature have, have practiced. They, they practice and have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now think about that a minute. Think about that a minute. Uh, you heard uh, Beth and, and others play this morning. I, I heard Beth play in the offertory and, and it's a beautiful song, beautiful piece of music. And uh, it always is. And you know, the thing I learned about Beth that I never knew until just a week or two ago is just one day she woke up and said, I want to play the piano, and she played just like that from the very first day. you believe that? Heavens no. I bet she started out, well, I started to say about like I would sounding over there, but now nah, I'm sure she didn't start that bad. But, but, but she started very elemental. She started with the elementary principles of piano. This is middle C. I do know what middle C is and then you move out from there, or something like that. But she she learned the elemental principles. I don't want to show totally my ignorance here, so I'm going to stop with that. But she got the way she is today by practice. She got the way she is today by putting time into it, by wanting more, by desiring that it be better. In in her case, desiring that it be perfect. And, And... It's that way with the Christian life. Now, if Beth had been lazy, she would not have practiced, but she would have stayed with chopsticks. And we could have been entertained every Sunday by chopsticks, and that's about it. And it would have just been being entertained, not led in worship. But she didn't. She had a desire for the Word. She had a desire to grow. She had a desire to mature. It's interesting when he says there in verse 11, they become dull of hearing. He uses a word there that in the Greek is in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense just simply means that there is an abiding result of a past act. Their ignorance and their laziness and their their carelessness has led to a resulting abiding way of life right now. You see, at some point they decided, we, we just don't want to go any deeper. And so their life today continues to show that. Many people, even today, as they did in, in this writer's day, in the day of this church uh, that was a scattered about of Hebrews, they, many people casually drift into a low standard of Christian life, life simply because they minimize the importance of Christian instruction and disciplined Bible study. they just drift into this low standard of christian life because they believe the really important thing is not uh, is not uh, what the word says or how deep they get in the word but the really important thing is whether they're entertained by television or movies or books or what if they're entertained then that's the meaning of life And this writer says, no, the meaning of life, the depth of life must come from a disciplined study of God's word and receiving disciplined Christian instruction. So the first thing he notices here is their ignorance in verses 11 through 14. Then the second thing he talks about is not just the problem of ignorance, but the problem of immaturity in verses 1 through 3. He says, therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ... That is the John three sixteen version. Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, that's baptisms there, and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. There he's talking about their immaturity. Just simply they have, they have ceased by their ignorance, they've, they've ceased to pursue the word of God and because of that, they're still babies. They're still mature. And they're just living there in the, in the elementary teachings, the basics. And he lists six things here that he considers the elementary teachings. But he's crying out that we must go on to maturity. We must press on to maturity. That's what he's saying in this whole thing, and especially verse 12, you know, let's press to maturity, let's go on. Because the solid foundation of Christian truth is of immense importance. It's of vital importance, but we must not be satisfied to stay at the foundation. We must now build the superstructure. We must now build the building and not keep laying the foundation. You know, when we go over to Oakleaf Lane, one of the first things we will do, we won't do it, but our builders will do it, is they will they will concentrate on building a solid foundation. There'll be pilings and there'll be, there'll be a slab and there'll be places to put steel beams and they'll fix all those bigger and they'll all be just like they need to be to hold up the building. And they will build, if they do their job right, a very sound and a very secure foundation. And Once that's built, if they turn to us and say, well, let's just use this. We'll look at them like they're crazy. We'll say, well, it's a a good foundation, but but where's the rest of it? Well, isn't the foundation really all you need? I mean, you know, it says build your house on a solid foundation, build it on rock, not on sand, so when the winds come and all that, you know, it'll stand firm. We've got you a good foundation. Can't you just be satisfied with that? Our answer would be absolutely not. We're not satisfied with that. What the rest of it? They said, well, I tell you what we're gonna do. We're gonna go back and, and work on the foundation a little more. It might take us a year or two, but we're gonna, we're gonna work on that foundation because we just really like foundation stuff. We'd say, you're fired, we'll hire somebody else. Because you just don't live at the foundation when you're building something. If you're building your life on Christ, it's important to have a good foundation. But if you stay at the foundation and you never proceed beyond the foundation, you'll live in immaturity. So he talks about six things here, six things that are very important elements of Christian teaching. As a matter of fact, it may very well be that these are six things that 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 church and the early church of that day used as sort of a catechism teaching. These may be six things that they taught to new converts, and they believe that every new believer and all their children ought to understand these six things because they were basics, and so they moved them, they catechized them, they moved them through a catechism of understanding these six things, and they are important foundationally. But you can't live at the foundation alone. He says six things here. It says, first of all, let's move on. Let's leave the elementary teaching about the Christ and let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance of dead works. Repentance of dead works. That's a basic matter. John the Baptist came on the scene. What did he preach? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came on the scene in his ministry. What did he preach? Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. The apostles in their ministry, what did they do? You see Paul and others out preaching in the book of Acts. What is their message? Repent and turn to Christ. Repent of your sins. Repent of your dead works. I mean, repentance is a basic part of the Christian message. Not only did Jesus say it at the beginning of his ministry, in, in, like in Mark chapter 115, but he, there are also his last recorded words in the book of Revelation when he writes those seven letters through the apostle John to the seven churches. His message there every single time is repent because you've fallen into sin, you've fallen into disobedience, you've fallen into being something I've not called you to be. And so repentance is an important part. And it's an important part to continue. But there should be a growing understanding of it, not just to repent so that you can be saved. The dead works he's talking about, I think, is what we might, what I would categorize in our day and time as as just quaint moralism. We live in a day of of moralism that's, that's unprecedented, especially in the Bible Belt. Especially in the Bible Belt. In the Bible Belt, we have built, you know, just sort of a pharisaical approach to Christianity where we say, you know, if you do this and do this and do this and don't do this, and usually do have too many do's, most of them are don'ts. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this then you must be a good Christian. Dead works are moralism whereby you're trying to be self-righteous and earn your righteousness with God by showing God how good you are and showing others how much of a good Christian you are by just pure moralism. And that is the cancer and that is the danger of Christianity in the day in which we live. You say, wait, Bill, are you saying that if we're a Christian, we won't be moral? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that moralism will grow out of not your own self-righteousness, not your own list of do's and don'ts, not your own judgments of one another and judgment of yourself in light of other people, but it will grow out of what what the writer here talks about, the word of righteousness, accustomed to the word of righteousness, where God's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, is built into you on the basis of faith. There is repentance from dead works that must take place for a person to be a Christian. If you're still living in moralism and trying to please God by your own good deeds, then you need to get back to the basics and repent of that. But you need to move beyond that. He also says another basic matter is faith in God. Well, of course it is. Everywhere through the scripture, you find not only repentance from something, but also faith towards something. And it's faith toward God, faith in Jesus Christ. Paul made that clear in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, when he said, I'm solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a basic elemental thing. Washings or baptisms, they they need to understand baptism is an important ordinance of the church. But it's a basic thing. It's an elemental thing. You are baptized to testify that you are a believer to show your profession of faith, and then you move on from that. You don't still sit around and say, well, I wonder if I need to be baptized again. You know, it might be, I've got, I've got one friend who has a person at their church that came to him the other day and said, you know, I, uh, my, my husband's just been saved, and, and I just think it'd be really cool if I were baptized with him. And he said, well, have you ever been baptized? Oh, yeah, seven times. And he said, no, I think you've been baptized enough. But he said, I think it'd be really a really cool thing for our marriage, you know, just to to celebrate it together. That's not what baptism's about. She's moved beyond that. You don't have to get baptized seven or eight times. Laying on of hands, probably indicative of a coming to the, the initiation of praying for a person as they come to faith in Christ could be an ordination type thing, but probably it's a matter of symbolically the, the Holy Spirit coming upon them their lives when they become a Christian. The church back then would lay hands on them and pray for them, that God would fill them with the Holy Spirit. That's an elemental thing. Resurrection from the dead, he says, is, is one of these things. And, and Paul talks about the absolute necessity and absolute importance of the resurrection. And evidently, apparently, some of the early converts had, had a problem with this. What do you mean? A man came back from the dead. Paul said, if, if he didn't, then we're wasting our time. If we didn't, you're still in your sins. If he didn't, you're, you're still lost. Everything's based on the resurrection. We need to understand the resurrection. We need to live in light of the resurrection, but we don't need to just sit around and just talk about it all the time. And eternal judgment. Well, we know that judgment's coming. The scripture's clear on that. But Paul says, I want you to understand you've got to move beyond that. And then there is the problem of apostasy in verses 4 through 8. And I cannot do that justice this morning. And so while I'm prepared to do it somewhat justice, I'm going to stop at these first two. We'll have a continuation of this sermon next week. We'll talk more about this matter of, of ignorance, this matter of immaturity as it leads to apostasy. And what does that mean? What is apostasy? What does it mean to, to once be enlightened and once share in the word and once share in the ministry of the Holy Spirit and see all that around you and then turn your back on it and deny Christ and, and do probably what is the most horrendous thing I could ever think of. Uh, the writer here says when you do that, you, you crucify Christ again. You, you, you crucify him all over again and you bring shame to his name. What does it mean to apostatize? What does it mean to turn away from that which is good and forfeit God's blessings and reject God's son and despise his gifts. We'll talk about that next week. I I love how Samuel Rutherford, and I'll probably use this again next week because it's really the summation of all of this, but I'll sum it up with this today. Samuel Rutherford in the 17th century reminded us of this. Sinners are anchor fast and made stable in God. So that if God does not change, which is impossible, he says, then my hope shall not fluctuate. Oh God, be thankful that our salvation is coasted and landed and shored up on Christ, who is the master of winds and storms. What would it take to turn you away? What kind of wind, what kind of storm, what kind of difficulty? Well, Rutherford says, if you're in Christ, you are protected from the storms. You are shored up in Christ, who's the master of all winds and the master of all storms. Let me ask you something this morning. Not a raise of hand type asking, but just a think about this type asking. Are you ignorant? I, again, I don't mean that derisive. I just mean, are you ignorant of the things of God? Do, do you lack understanding? Do you lack a, a rooting in the things of God? Oh, you've you made a profession of faith. You've been baptized. You've joined a church and and all that's well, but you just, you just said, okay, that's it? And you sit back in your ignorance? Are you desired to go further? Have you desired to know more of Christ and more of his glory? Are you not content to move to, to just sit there at John 3.16, but you want to move on and understand the, the great truths of Romans and Hebrews and, and other great expositions of the Christian faith? Are you lazy? Is that why you're ignorant? It's evidently what a lot of their problem was. I don't have time, man. I, I work a full-time job and I don't have time for Bible study. I don't have time to, you know, I barely make it to church on Sunday morning. Then sometimes I don't. Are you immature? Oh, mature as a person you've grown up. You're an adult, but perhaps, but, but you're immature in the things of Christ, the things of God. Listen, the writer says here, there must be a conscious, a conscious effort, a conscious decision under the authority of Christ to press forward, to move forward. Now I gotta tell you, I came to this town six years ago, almost. And the joy that I see in the maturity and growth in so many lives is unbelievable. Because for many of you, there there was a laziness. There was just kind of a complacency. There's change to a diligence and a desire to walk with Christ. Boy, that that thrills a pastor. This, This pastor had a hurting heart. Mine is a joyful heart in so many ways. But I tell you, there's still a hurting heart when all are not committed to that. Desiring that. And pressing toward that. What's your heart? What's your desire? What do you want in Christ? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. That your word does not hold a thing back. That your word is pointed and sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, sometimes it cuts, and it hurts when it cuts. But Lord, it always cuts, not with a destructive sling, but it cuts with the precise, the preciseness of the of the surgeon's scalpel in the hands of the great physician, the great surgeon, the Lord Jesus Christ, who desires to cut away the dross, to cut away the moralism, to cut away the self-dependency, to cut away the self-righteousness, and Lord, to build a true righteousness of Christ in our life alone. Father, use your word for that in my life. Use your word for that in our lives. Use your word for that in the life of this church. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Our human commitments receive the glory.